Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We're beginning in verse 16 and we're going to come into chapter 9 and we'll come down through verse number 10 of chapter 9. And so uh, we're looking at kind of a, a more longer text, but it all, it all flows together. And so uh, I pray that what we see here will, will benefit us. Uh, title of the message is Understanding for Life, no, Understanding for Death and Life. I have that reversed because that's the order in which it comes. Understanding for Death and Life. And so let's read our text beginning in verse 16 down through chapter 9 and verse 10. Notice he says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die." But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate, their envy and have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Quite a bit to take in there, but I think there's a lot of truth that we can glean from it. But I want to kind of open up this way. Have you ever maybe read a book or maybe watched a movie or a show that had maybe some great mystery to it. The plot kind of develops and it generates a lot of questions that you have uh, throughout the story and maybe throughout the narrative. I enjoy uh, shows and, and stories along those lines. They keep you alert. They keep you on the edge trying to figure things out. Uh, you're trying to think of, you know, why did this happen or who did this and how does it all fit together? The good thing about a book or a show in that, in, in that context, especially if it's written well, is that you usually get all the answers to all those mysterious questions at the end, don't you? And uh, you see how it all fits together in a very short time. Well, we can, we, when it comes to life under the sun and everything, when I say everything, I literally mean everything in life under the sun that happens in this world, much of it is mysterious to us, isn't it? We see a lot of things, we experience a lot of things that are uh, uncertain uh, or maybe even troubling in the, in the world in which we live. Much of life is a mystery. 
and we don't see how every detail of everything fits, fits together. But what we do know from Scripture is this, is that there's one and only one sovereign God who governs all things according to His providence and according to His purposes. Now, Solomon, in this passage, he presents to us some key principles regarding man's understanding of things, the various experiences that we have in this world, the reality of death coming to all men, and how that should affect our view of life and how we ought to live life. So he's presented us with some of these truths before, but here he kind of expounds on them just a little further, uh, building on what he just said previously in the chapter, right? You remember that he, he brought out how it often appears that the wicked prevail and the prosper and there's no justice in the land and, and how oftentimes bad things happen to the righteous. But he emphasizes through all that that the number one thing we ought to do is what? Fear God and live that way. Why? Because it will be well for those who fear God. It's not going to be well for the wicked in the end. So God, God will have a time when he's going to set all things right. But until we get to that time, there's a lot of mystery in the world. There's a lot of things we don't understand why certain things happen. And that brings us to our first point here tonight. I want to bring out of our text, and number one, you'll see in our notes, is that mankind's, I want you to see mankind's limited understanding. Mankind's limited understanding. And this is a reality we all, we all identify with, right? But notice, firstly, Solomon's goal of fully understanding, because that's, that's kind of been his objective through this. His goal of fully understanding, grasping it all, right? In chapter 8 and verse 16, we'll, we see how it flows into, even though there's a break in the chapter marker here, the context flows together through this next chapter. He repeats something that he already stated a couple times in the book. Verse 16, he says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. This is his goal. This is his objective, to view and observe the business that happens on earth, all of it. Now, Solomon, he's, he's uniquely gifted by God with wisdom. As far as we know, he's the wisest man to walk the earth other than Jesus Christ. So he's a man gifted with wisdom from God himself. But even with what wisdom he had, he didn't have full wisdom, did he? He did not have the fullness of knowledge, the fullness of understanding. And with what wisdom he does have, he seeks to observe deeply and intently all the business done on earth. Well, what does he mean by business? It refers to all the affairs of life, all the affairs that we see that happen in life under the sun. Now, his goal here is massive in scale, and as we're going to see plainly from the text, it's impossible to a mere mortal person uh, to fully grasp everything and understand everything. And you'll notice he says at the end of this verse that, that neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. Now, he could be referring to one of two things. He could be referring to man and his affairs, how that he's so busy with the affairs of life, so burdened with the affairs of life that he loses sleep over it. He could also be referring to his own self, how that in his contemplation over everything, he loses sleep over it. But the main principle here is that all of the business on earth is a very troublesome thing to understand. Which brings me to letter B. Notice with the second aspect here is that we see Solomon's inability for full understanding. His inability for full understanding. Now, regarding his goal of getting this full knowledge and understanding of all the business done on earth, in verse 17 he says, 
Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Now, there's a lot of smart people in the world that think they know everything, or at least try to know everything. But Solomon right here, the wisest man in the world, mortally speaking, he's saying there's not anybody that can figure it all out. There's not anybody that, even though they may have all the wisdom that they could possess, humanly speaking, though they may give much toil in seeking, he says they cannot find it out. So Solomon, what he's doing here, he's really admitting his own inability to genuinely be able to, be able to understand everything. Man cannot find it out of all that's done under the sun. As we evaluate our world and all of history, it is indeed the work of God, isn't it? Who created all things? It is God. Who set in motion all of history? It is God. Who is it that governs history? It is God. Who has declared the end from the beginning? It is God. Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon said this earlier. He said of God, He has made everything beautiful in its time, Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. So, man knows of God, there's eternity in his heart, but man can't figure everything out of what God has ordained in life under the sun. Because it's God who has created and ordained what happens from beginning to end. Now, what God ordains and allows in this world is beyond what man can truly understand. Why is that? Well, two basic reasons I want to give you here. Why is it that we can't understand it all? Well, mankind's not meant to understand everything about everything. God didn't create us with that intention, that we understand everything about everything. We were created with the intention of trusting our Creator with everything. What Proverbs? What did Solomon say in Proverbs 3, 5? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't do what? Don't lean on your understanding, right? So God is meant to be trusted as the one who does know everything about everything and who controls everything about everything. He alone is the one who's all-knowing, who's all-powerful, who's all-present, who is all-wise and loving and holy and all the characteristics that we know of God. David said in Psalm 147, 5, he says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. You can't measure out the understanding of God. His understanding is beyond measure. That's, that's infinity, infinite in his understanding. Now, we are made to know some things. We are not made to know everything. God said through Moses in Deuteronomy 29, 29, this is a great text to keep in your heart, all right, when it comes to not understanding certain things. Moses says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So in God's revelation of himself and of truth, and what we're able to understand, it is limited. Secret things belong to God. But what is revealed belongs to us. We're accountable for what's revealed, what we do know, to believe and to obey and to honor God with. So so why can't man understand everything? He's not meant to understand everything. That's one reason. 
But here's another reason he doesn't understand everything, because he's not capable of understanding everything about everything. I've often said this, that man is finite, God is infinite. If the finite could truly comprehend the infinite, the finite would cease to be finite. He would be infinite. It would put us on the same level as the infinite. And so God is always going to be infinitely superior to us. So a complete understanding about everything, about God and what happens in this world, it is beyond what we can reach. I thought this was interesting. You think about information and how information multiplies and grows, especially in a digital age like our own. How fast does information multiply in our digital age? Some, some researchers suggest that information doubles every 12 hours. Every 12 hours. You think about how much information is out there and it just keeps doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling, right? It could be more, depending on when this article was written. But it's flourished in this digital age. For comparison, some say back in, say, the year of 1900, information would only double at the rate of every 100 years. There was no digitalized, digital, digital uh, usage of things in the way we have it now. Nowadays, you've got the Internet, you've got computers, and, and, and what do you find with information? Man, mankind is continuously researching, discovering, inventing, writing information. It's constantly being added to. One human brain cannot process or even comprehend all the information that man himself has accumulated, say, through encyclopedias in the ancient world or the Internet in today's world, right? We can't even fathom all that information. And yet, what do we think about with this, this relation to God is that it's impossible for one person to take in all the information of mankind, but that doesn't even scratch the surface of the infinite nature of what knowledge is wrapped up in God himself. What he knows doesn't even scratch the surface of God and his works in all of eternity and history. And so thus, Solomon says of God's ways, even though a wise man claims to know, he don't really know. <laughs> He does not know. He can't find it out. And Christian, that's a great comfort to me. That I don't have to know everything about everything. I mean, I have trouble keeping up with the basic things I'm supposed to know now, right? And so we don't have to. But there's glory in knowing the depths of God's knowledge and his ways and his workings. Romans 11.33, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We have an infinitely magnificent God. I can trust him with everything else that I don't know. Now, in the same context, it continues in chapter 9, where Solomon says in verse 1, notice this, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. This is his goal. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. So there is literally nothing in this world that's outside of God's hand as if something can somehow evade his sovereignty, his control, his purposes. As Sproul said, there's no such thing as a maverick molecule, right? Uh, it, there's nothing outside of his control. Anything that would be outside of his control would be a challenge to the one true God, but it's not. So he, got, he sovereignly controls the affairs of both the righteous and the wicked in this world. So based on the plain observation of man, no person knows how things will be in their life ahead of them. Solomon's emphasized this already. No man knows their future. He says this concerning this point. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. In other words, no man knows what is coming upon him. Love or hate or good or bad, what they're going to experience. 
Tomorrow could be a good day for you, could be a bad day for you. You don't know. I don't know. Only God knows. Only God knows this. And here's what he's pointing out, is that what we do know is that God's in control of everything in this world, and that we in life under the sun, we experience all the variety of these things, good and bad. Remember Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5.45, he said, Of God, he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Sometimes bad things happen to good, I say, godly people. Sometimes good things happen to godly people. Sometimes bad things happen to bad people. Sometimes good things happen to bad people too. So, So, for example, righteous and unrighteous, they both experience hurricanes. They both experience the loss of loved ones. They both experience tornadoes and and diseases and and tragedies and economic struggles. They both experience prosperity. They both experience good health reports and bad health reports. It happens to all people. Now, we, we don't understand all this, nor can we understand all this. We aren't given the answer to every detail of the story. And that's not the point of Ecclesiastes, to give us the answer to every detail of the narrative, of history. The point of Ecclesiastes is to show us the big picture of life in a sin-cursed world and that at the core of that, the most important thing you can do is fear God and walk with Him and honor Him and glorify Him because you're created in His image and for His purposes. So, it's a book we read, we pine over, we learn from about living for God in a sin-cursed world. So mankind's limited understanding is plain here. But that doesn't mean that there aren't certain things we absolutely do know. We ought to understand. And here's, the, here's number two. We see mankind's universal event. This is one thing we know for sure. going to happen. Is that death comes for everyone. That's what he points out through this text. Death comes for everyone. It's no respecter of persons. Verse 2, notice that he says, It happens the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears as he who shuns an oath. You notice this is repeated through this text, this same event, same event. What is that same event that happens to everybody? It's death. It's death. And what's this list show us? There's really two categories of people in the world, the righteous and the unrighteous. God's people and those who ain't God's people. Those who, in his, his day and time, offer sacrifices, those who have been religious in the temple, following the Old Testament worship, those who don't. Those who give oaths to God, those who don't. Two categories of people. And what we find with this is that the point is, That the righteous, they're not necessarily visibly favored by providence, nor are the unrighteous visibly rebuked by providence when death comes for both of them. Death comes for both of them. The Christian doesn't escape death just because he knows God. Now, we have victory over death, but we still don't get to escape death. We're going to face it. It's coming for us. So what he's saying is, regardless of who you are in this world, death is coming for everyone because it doesn't respect anyone. We can't outrun death with any kind of effort that we may make in this life, no matter how religious we may appear to be or how healthy we may appear to be or how safe we try to live. Death comes for us all. And with that in view, what's Solomon think of it? 
Well, you look at verse 3 and the first part of that verse, notice what he says. He says, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Solomon sees death as a great evil in this world. Is death evil? Of course it is. The very reason there is such a thing as death is because of evil. That there in the very beginning, the paradise of God, death wasn't there. Death entered into the world, in history. Now, thankfully, we look at the big scope of the gospel and redemption. The enemy of death has already been overcome by Christ. Praise God for that. He's died for sinners and rose from the dead, conquering death for them, because we had no hope without that, right? I love what Paul says of this, about the redemption that, that God has given to his people. In 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, he says, "...of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus." Notice these three words, "...who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel." That's, that's what we rejoice in, Christian. Because Ecclesiastes, without that truth of the gospel, is a sad story. But Solomon, understand, he's not only saying that death itself is evil. He's also saying that the way death works in this world is also evil. Now, from our human perspective, it comes in many ways that are very confusing and sometimes harsh. Now, most people would probably like to die in a very peaceful, unknowing way, right? If we had it our way, I'd like to live a good old life, maybe die in my sleep, not even know it's coming. That'd be the preferable way to die. But that's not how it happens for most people, is it? Some people drop dead in the middle of life unexpectedly, like my dad. I think of dad in this issue. He just dropped dead, didn't have a clue. Some people get cancer or some other kind of disease and go through a very painful battle only to die in the end. Some people sadly die in their infancy. We fail to understand that. Some people die in tragic accidents like car wrecks or ships sinking or even just falling and breaking their neck. People die in a variety of ways. And this is what, this is what grieves Solomon. No matter what way you look at death, we would agree that it is an evil thing in this world. It's an evil thing in this world. But Solomon continues, and he also gives us the underlying reason that this evil happens to all people in this world and why death is the universal problem for mankind. In verse 3, notice that he says, also, as if, don't forget this, with regarding death, also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Now, the skeptic in this world who rejects God and rejects really biblical principle, he sees death and he sees all the evil and afflictions in life under the sun, and what's he do with them? He blames God for them. You see kind of an increase of that today. People evaluate the world and suffering and the, the, the rise of skepticism and even atheism is, is, is very prevalent, especially in our nation. But what does Solomon and the rest of Scripture reveal plainly about this? The reason for death and the reason for suffering, the reason for the evils that we see and experience in this world is because of this statement. The hearts of the children of men are full of evil. Now, man naturally likes to think himself somewhat a little bit good and maybe a little bit evil. No, he's zero good and all evil. 
even though he may appear to do some morally good things. That's his nature. You see, in the beginning, in the paradise of Eden, when there was no evil, no death, God warned Adam that to disobey and rebel against him would bring death. And we know how the rest of the story goes, right? Paul sums up this history in Romans 5.12. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. You notice Solomon says with this evil in the heart of mankind comes madness or foolishness while they live. Do we see any madness or foolishness in our world, in our nation? We see it everywhere. You turn on the news and hear the most dumb things that happen ever. And why do people do these stupid things that are sinful? Because of what's in their heart. Why do people say certain things? Because of what's in their heart. We see madness and folly everywhere. It's everywhere. This is how man lives until this certain point. They go to the dead. They go to the dead. So what's this truth lead us to? Well, Solomon brings us next, letter B. Not only do we see that death comes for everybody. This is man's universal event. We see that life is preferable to death. Life is preferable to death. In the context of what Solomon's talking about, he puts emphasis on life. Verse 4, notice what he says. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Well, what's he mean by those who are alive have hope? In spite of how cursed the world is in sin and death, those who are alive, they still have opportunity to live. They have opportunity to do what they should do in life under the sun. They have opportunity to enjoy life under the sun, as we'll get to in a moment. But the dead, they don't have that opportunity anymore. They're done. They can't come back. They can't live as they ought to. And so Solomon illustrates this with the proverb. You notice what he says. He says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. So, well, what's he mean by that? What he's saying is that dogs are better than cats. I'm just... Some of you would say amen to that, right? I'm kidding. In fact, biblically speaking, it'd be the opposite. Culturally, in Solomon's time and in most ancient times, lions were revered because they were prominent in respected animals. They're the king of the jungle, as many say, right? But dogs, they were greatly despised. Agur in Proverbs wrote this thing when he's talking about the things that are stately or significant. Proverbs 30.30 says, The lion which is mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. He says the lion is a stately or respectable animal. In contrast, you know what dogs were to them? They were the scavengers of the land, much like a rodent or a vulture. Exodus twenty two thirty one, he says, You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts of the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Now, dogs in Solomon's time they were not domesticated like today they were not man's best friend they were viewed as a varmint in a sense nowadays dogs are precious to us right if you've had dogs or you do have or you have or did have dogs you take care of them you enjoy their company but all through scripture dogs are viewed in a very unpleasant way but to solomon's point though a lion is more strong and powerful and admirable as an animal if it's dead it's useless Its power and respect are gone. A dog, though it was more despised, is better since it's at least still alive. 
So Solomon expounds on this idea of hope in the living in verse 5 through 6. Look at this passage. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. For they have no, no, re, no more reward, for their memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. What's his focus here? It's that those who are alive can still live a meaningful way because they know they're going to die. Death should prompt them in their life and how they ought to live because it's a universal event. Just like we read earlier in the book, funerals spark our heart again, don't they? About our own mortality. This is, this is where we're all headed. Knowing this reality of death should provoke us to consider how we live our life. The living can reckon with the reality of death and do something about their life. But once a person is dead, once they die, Solomon says they know nothing. In other words, they're gone from this world. Their consciousness of living in this world, like you and I have today, we can see and hear and touch and taste and speak and, and all the things that we do, it's gone. They don't get to do that anymore in this world. The time is coming when all that you think, feel, and experience in this world, in your mortal body, it's going to be over. The dead have no more share in all that is done under the sun, Solomon says, because once life ends, it's over. Now, this does not mean that there's not an afterlife. That's not Solomon's focus here. His focus isn't about heaven and hell. He's clearly going to show us there's a judgment, and there's reward, and so there's accountability to God. But his focus is here, is that life can't be recaptured once you're dead. It's not like a video game where if you fail and die on a level, you get to restart and do it over again. You don't get that opportunity. And that leads us to this great application, this great application that Solomon brings to life. We see mankind's universal event, it's dead, death. We see mankind's limited understanding regarding life and all that we experience and see in the world. But notice with me number three, I want you to see mankind's stewardship of life. Mankind's stewardship of life. Our lack of understanding in all things that happen to the sun and our true understanding of the fact that we're going to die ought to affect how we live day to day, moment by moment. And here's two applications I want to bring to you that, I, that really hit home with me. I hope they hit home with you. We must enjoy the gifts of God in this life. Now, he's already touched on this. It's one of the reoccurring themes. Fear God is reoccurring, and so is enjoyment in life reoccurring. So he emphasizes in specific ways enjoyment of life. In verse 7, he says, Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. What kind of enjoyment do you see in this setting? We see the enjoyment of food and drink. He says to eat bread. That would be eating a meal, eating food. Now, we all like to eat, right? If you say no to that, you're lying. We all like to eat. We're Baptists. We do that twice a month for a reason. We are blessed with a vast variety of meals that we can eat, from the restaurants that surround us to the recipes and content and groceries that we can buy. You know, I saw a guy that was, he was in a foreign country, third world country, a video earlier this week, and he had this whole frog, whole frog that he was cooking in a dish. He didn't have much at all, at all to eat. And 
and he was cooking it and spicing it up and, you know, cooking it through and all this stuff, and I thought, surely he's going to skin that or pull some meat off or anything. He just bites into the head and rips it off. Takes a huge old bite, but he's enjoying it. Best he's got. That's his sustenance. Now, for me, it would be kind of hard. But you think about it, that's what he has. He's, that's his life. He's enjoying life. He's, he's, he has something to eat. He has something to eat. Now, I say that in regard to how blessed we are. We have to thank God for this. But even if we don't have much, we thank God for it, right? You see, regardless of what food is before you, when you sit down to eat, how many of us have ever just taken the moment just to pause and just savor every bite that you're taking? Savor it. Enjoy it. A lot of times we, we eat in a rush. We've got to get here, we've got to get there, and life is so fast-paced today that we don't always get to sit down and just enjoy life. Enjoy the very meal that we're eating before us. We need to recognize every bite that we take as a gift from God. And as Solomon says, eat it with joy. Eat it with joy. Solomon also says, drink your wine with a merry heart. Now, I'll touch on this for a moment. The subject of wine and alcohol in general, it's a very touchy and thorny subject among a lot of people, and for good reason. But I think it's important for us to let the Bible form our understanding of that subject, not culture and not even experience. That's what we have to understand. The word for wine here, it appears 141 times in the Old Testament, and that's not the only word for wine, but this is the majority word used. But understand that, that wine served a, a very important role in that day and time. It was an important beverage in an area where drinkable water was very scarce for proximity, drought, or contamination. So wine, understand, it was a fermented drink, but most likely the wine they drink was not as strong as some of the wines of today. But here's what I want to say. Biblically, it's not a sin to consume alcohol, but it is a sin for it to consume you. You must understand that difference. On the one hand, Scripture expressly condemns drunkenness and addiction. Paul writes in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. On the other hand, it is open to wise moderation under control. Paul does not say, don't drink wine at all. He says, don't get drunk on wine. So when it comes to this issue, a Christian or anyone for that matter, you need to have your own conviction regarding fermented drinks. One may be a teetotaler, and that is perfectly fine. One may have a, hold a moderate position, and that also is biblically fine. Wisdom... Temperance and witness must all be considered when it comes to this issue. Because I know that it's touchy, especially for people who've had a past where they've been addicted to it or they've experienced family problems with it. I understand that. Totally do. Everybody has to have their own conviction about that. Paul said regarding secondary issues like this, in Romans 14, 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. All right? He also says don't pass judgment on a brother for not having the same conviction you have. So we, we have to understand the biblical position of this. But in Solomon's context, I give that just as, that, just as a short summary. You could, there's a whole lot of depth to go into that subject. But in short summary, Solomon's context, this was fermented wine. It was a regular and choice beverage of their day. And so Solomon says to his listeners, drink your wine with a merry heart. In other words, enjoy what you're drinking just as much as you enjoy what you're eating. Now, in a modern-day context... This could be applied to anything we drink. A glass of sweet tea. A good old 
fountain root beer from Whataburger. That's one drink I like. I enjoy their root beers. Cold cup of water. Savor it. Enjoy it. Enjoy these as the gifts of God. Now Solomon says next in verse 8, he says, let your garments be always white, let not your oil be lacking on your head. What could this mean? Now, regarding garments, Solomon's not saying that you should only wear the color white. That'd be pretty boring. <laughs> Imagine all of us always wearing white. No. White garments were worn firstly because they were less hot in the Middle Eastern climate. But also, they were a festive clothing that conveyed happiness and celebration. For joyous occasions. So we could contrast this in a modern day application with putting on some nice clothes, enjoying a night out, enjoying yourself. Notice he says regarding oil on the head. This also was to make it a little more comfortable in that hot climate, helped to relieve skin irritation, but also it was a fragrance in helping some of them smell a little better, which I'm sure they probably needed. We all need that, right? Praise God for deodorant and cologne. But in summary, what's Solomon saying here? He's saying, find enjoyment even in, even in these things. Your clothes, your appearance. He's not saying you've got to be fancy and dress up all the time, but he's saying, find enjoyment in these gifts that you have of God. We should be enjoying these things. Solomon brings up another very important element in enjoyment of life. Verse 9, he says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love, and all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. You notice that Solomon does not say, live with your wife and put up with her best you can. Or husband, vice versa. Sometimes that's what people think about marriage. Well, we just got to put up with them best we can and just go on. Now, what does he say? He says, enjoy life with your wife or your husband. Enjoy it. So, so do you love your wife or your husband? Then you should cherish the moments you have and enjoy them with them. You see, marriage is one of God's gifts to us in helping us through this sin-cursed world. How many times has your spouse been an encouragement and a help to you, given you a perspective that you needed at a certain time, said something that you needed, corrected you on something maybe you didn't correct it on, We've all been there. Solomon says, enjoy them all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Why does he say that? Because your marriage is only temporary. Enjoy your spouse in all the ways that you can. Enjoy each other. Enjoy them relationally. Spending time with them. Talking to them. Fellowshipping with them. Enjoy them physically through the gift of sexual intimacy. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. That part of marriage. Enjoy them spiritually by fulfilling your God-ordained role in marriage. Ephesians 5, 25-33. Whatever it is that you have, whatever way you can enjoy each other, do so. This is the gift of God in a very uncertain life. And lastly, regarding enjoyment, verse 10, he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. What do you think he could be meaning to find enjoyment with here? Our work or anything else that we find to do in this world. Now, many people view work and they don't like it. They may even hate to do it, right? They view work as a curse. But you understand, even work is not part of the curse of sin. Work existed in the perfect paradise of God. God commissioned Adam to work in the Garden of Eden. 
Work has become harder because of sin. But notice what he says. Whatever it is you do, do it with all your might. In other words, give your work your best effort, whether you like it or not. Because in the big picture of things, you don't work for an employer, you work for Jesus. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. And there's a reason that we should work in this way. Verse 10, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. That's really the whole principle of this passage. Once you go to the grave, which is what Sheol refers to, there's no more doing it over again. So here's the emphasis here with this enjoyment. We see that we're called to enjoy these gifts of God, but do we actually pause to enjoy them? Notice how Solomon opens this section. What's the, what's the one word he opens verse 7 with? Go. Go. What does that mean? That's an imperative to us. Don't delay in doing this. Go and enjoy. Go and enjoy these gifts that he has given to you, that are of God. Why does he... Why? Why enjoy? Why the, why the urgency of this? Why the imperative of this? Because of the uncertain time of death coming for all of us. Enjoy the meal and drink you're consuming because guess what? That might be your last one. Enjoy fellowship and the special attire you might wear and the time you have with somebody. Might be your last time to do that. Enjoy every moment with your spouse. Why? Might be the last moment you have with them. We could take it even more broadly today. Enjoy and engage in worship every time with all your heart. Why? That might be the last time you get to do so in this life under the sun. Enjoy and work hard to do your best. Why? Might be your last opportunity or day to do so. This is what understanding of death brings to life. It prompts us to enjoy life in God. But notice with me lastly, letter B. I'll try to be quick here, but I wanted to add this last point. We also must enjoy the giver above all gifts. We see the gifts from the giver, but we must enjoy the giver in them because that's the whole purpose. You look at verse 7, he says, God has already approved of what you do, meaning it's come from him. Verse 9, this is your portion in life in your toil in which you toil under the sun. So you think about where all these gifts that we have come from, and they come from the Lord. James 1.17 makes that unmistakable. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is the giver of all that we receive. And central to us enjoying the gifts is our understanding that they all come from the giver for our enjoyment. Now you understand, God's common grace extends these gifts really to everybody in the world. Marriage is for believers and unbelievers. They eat and drink and enjoy things, the same thing we enjoy, right? But the difference is the Christian understands where they come from and what they're meant for, the glory of God. Because there's a great danger with any gift. The great danger with any gift is forgetting the purpose of that gift in our life. What is the purpose of everything we receive in this world? The glory of God. That is it. Man's chief end is to what? Glorify God and what? Enjoy Him forever. They're connected. 1 Corinthians 10.31, you can't get any simpler than this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, God created us for His own purpose and pleasure. And failing to see these things brings great sorrow. 
even when the gifts we have are enjoyed. Abraham Piper, you may not have heard of him, but he is John Piper's son. He's an apostate. He has a TikTok channel. He's got over a million followers, and he's constantly degrading God and challenging all of Christianity. But he posted a video that I saw recently about going to a therapist. He goes to a therapist because he struggles with his worldview that there's no God and no purpose in this world. Isn't that ironic? You know that there's a God and purpose in this world. And your anxiety and struggle that you need therapy for is because you have turned away from the one true God. You see, God created us to enjoy Him in all that He's given us to enjoy. You see, whenever we leave God out of the gifts we enjoy, we enter into the realm of idolatry. Tim Keller rightly said it this way, sin is not just doing bad things, but, making, but the making of good things into ultimate things. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significant purpose and happiness than your relationship with God. I thought that was a great way of putting it. Because only God can really give us true enjoyment in the end. But part of that enjoyment from a Christian standpoint is enjoying Him and the daily gifts that He gives us because God takes pleasure in your enjoying what He gives you. You think about a parent's joy of giving their children a gift. Every time we give a kid a gift, we get joy out of them getting joy in the gift. I enjoy giving to them for them to enjoy it. The same applies to God. Many people think that Christians, well, they just live a, that holiness in the Christian life means that you live a, a narrow, rigid, legalistic life. You have no fun. You have no joy. You just, it's the opposite biblically. Enjoyment in life is not living as you want in sin, but it's enjoying all that God gives us, knowing it came from Him for His glory. So you have various things you can enjoy in life that often we may think, well, I don't know about that. You have a hobby you enjoy, like to hunt, like to play golf? Enjoy that to the glory of God. You like to go out with your wife and go see a movie or go to dinner? Enjoy that to the glory of God. The gifts, the little things, enjoy them to the glory of God. That's what we see from this text. He gives us clear understanding of death and life. We're limited in what we're able to understand in life from the Son of all God's works and all things we see, but there's something we do know and understand. Death is coming. We have to enjoy the life that God's given us for His glory while we fear Him and walk with Him and serve Him. So I hope this kind of gives us a fresh perspective on that and has encouraged us tonight.